0: It's likely not a coincidence that you're here looking for effective information about the low carb or ketogenic lifestyles or a carnivorous lifestyle. Are you looking for trustworthy information on healthy nutrition, weight loss, general health questions, balancing your hormones, or living a longer, fuller, or more abundant life? Even men and women at the peak of health find themselves wondering if there's more to life beyond the mirror, the scale, the stress test, the colonoscopy, or the lab test. Whether you're looking for more meaning in your life, increasing your confidence, your ability to make a bigger impact, improving healthy relationships, improving your wealth, experiencing deeper and more meaningful love, or even creating a powerful, lasting legacy. Find out how amazing your life can be on this episode of Doc Talk with Dr. Adam Nelly. Listen and learn as we take complex health topics and make them clear, understandable, and applicable to your life. My desire is that you find the answers to the burning questions you have, answers that will get you back on track, improve your health, and let you be who you were meant to be. Whatever your reason, thank you for being here. I'm so glad you're joining me today. If you have a question that you'd like discussed on doc talk i'd love to answer it i cannot give individual advice or recommendations but we can answer the question in an educational format and give you some tools to make educated decisions about your health if you have a question email it to questions at docmuscles.com again that's questions at docmuscles.com d-o-c-m-u-s-c-l-e-s.com if you're interested in more personal instruction and information on any of the topics discussed here go to docmuscles.com forward slash membership to learn more and sign up to be a part of my health and coaching services, it only takes a couple of minutes to learn more about your health. Again, that's docmuscles.com forward slash membership. Enjoy the episode of Doc Talk with me, Dr. Adam Nelly. Well, hello and welcome to episode six. It's great to have you. I uh, appreciate you being here and uh, had three questions come in over the last few weeks. Uh, all of these questions are very similar in nature, so I'll kind of summarize them. They came from Leanne, Stephanie, and Angelica. Um, they're about energy, motivation, poor recovery from sleep, and cravings. How do we handle those? How do you deal with those on a daily basis? How do you recover from them as they've kicked people off the uh, ketogenic or carnivorous wagon? Um, I won't read the, the questions to in, in the aspect of time, but uh, due to time, but hopefully I can address the questions and give you some meat to chew on uh, over this podcast. So this will kind of summarize these three questions in, a, in a, 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 a format, and so I want to build some background uh, in, in doing so. Um, New Year's is coming, and before you set a single goal for 2023, I want you to ask yourself a very important question. Actually, three questions. Um, Number one, why do you want to do a specific thing or a specific goal? Why do you want to have it happen? Number two, what is the fire that's lighting the pursuit or the attainment within you for that specific goal or desire? And then number three, why should you be willing to, to wake up at dawn, break your back, bloody your knuckles, drip blood and sweat and tears into this thing? Um, What is the why that drives you towards it? Uh, Many of us think the why is still there serving us, um, yet the lifespan of a why is astonishingly short. Uh, I see this every day. I've seen it for 22 years as a a physician in dealing with weight uh, goals and health goals with various patients. Uh, hundreds and thousands of patients, actually, uh, where people will will do well with some motivation and willpower, but willpower has a shelf life, and all of a sudden that willpower falls off, uh, and they lose the motivation, and they revert back to old habits. If you're still trying to squeeze the why and expect more life juice uh, to fuel you, the stone that you've been squeezing may have already been bled out. It could be the stone never had enough life juice in it to start with, um, or that the fears, uh, or the could be that the, the fears and anxieties overpowered the life juice that that stone had, uh, or it may be uh, a why that's buried deep within your amygdala or subconscious that you're completely unaware of. We're going to address that today. Uh, the why is essentially hope. It's your hope. If your hope is cloudy, if it isn't clear, if it has changed or it was never clear to begin with, uh, it won't have the power to fuel you. Uh, is your why something that's been tarnished, smothered, buried by the events of life? Uh, or uh, over the last two years with all the craziness that's happened. Um, a lack of hope is usually the reason that most men and women quit. It's, the hope is essentially the why. And if without the why or without the hope, you really will fall into despair. It, you'll have periods of short-term motivation, but because that motivation has a shelf life, uh, which usually ends by about 2.30 in the afternoon, uh, you may f- find that you fall to cravings later that afternoon that evening when it comes to diet things of nature. Uh, This is the main reason that most people fall off the health wagon, drag the wagon into the forest, set it on fire to warm their hands while they wait for an insurance claims agent to walk by. Hope is powerful. It's, uh, in fact, an infinite power. It's essentially the power behind seeking for a better life. Um, If you do a simple web search of hope, it will literally bring up 16,212 quotes. At least that's the number of quotes that came up today as I did a web search on Google. Uh, What you'll find in reading through this list of quotes and the thousands of comments about hope is that people are the happiest and they're the most content when they have three things, someone to love, something to do, and something to hope for. Uh, We won't talk about love and we won't necessarily talk about, well, we will talk about things to do, but specifically today I want to focus on the the hope aspect of this and how to drive that. to live a powerful life, it's important to understand that hope is essentially one leg of a three-legged stool. Now, a chair has four legs, but if you have a three-legged stool, it's a lot easier to set that stool on an uneven uh, surfaces or uneven ground. Um, and interestingly enough, in the Judeo-Christian system that most of us come from, um, hope is often tied to faith and charity. Uh if you look at those three things, uh, faith is essentially a moving power, but its focus is in the past. It's in it's, faith is in uh, truth that's been identified in the past. Uh, hope is essentially an infinite power that focuses on the future, and charity is essentially a power uh, or love that focuses upon the present. If any of these three legs are missing from that stool, it topples over. Life missing one uh, of these will literally lead to physical and or mental illness, and I see that every day, and I've seen that for 22 years in my practice. That's why I bring it up. These are three factors that that play an essential role in a a happy life. You have to have all three of these. Faith, hope, and charity. Uh, I've been drawn to these concepts from both a medical and a religious aspect for many, many years. Um, I I find it fascinating that in the in the Judeo-Christian scriptures, uh, there's one of the passages: "Behold, I came into the world not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. The whole need no physician, but they that are sick." I found that physical and mental sickness are frequently tied to imbalance of that three-legged stool. Um, And so those that need the physician are not those that are whole, it's it's those that are missing one of those aspects. And specifically, we're gonna talk about how hope relates to your diet, how hope relates to your ability to stay on track with the goals that you're making. I'm recording this on a Sunday evening after doing some religious study, and in the geometry of the Judeo-Christian theology, Hope has a greater circumference than faith, in that if faith increases, the perimeter of your hope stretches correspondingly. The Apostle Paul in the New Testament of the Bible, specifically in Romans 15.4, talks about the fact that the scriptural records were written by faithful men or prophets, uh, that men might actually have hope. Um, Hope specifically is the whisper of our heart about the possibility of our lives, said Debashi Shmirda, a neurologist, philosopher, and author. We read in the Old Testament of Psalms 146, verse 5, that hope has the capacity to fill our lives with happiness, and in Proverbs 13, 12, the absence of hope creates sickness within the heart. You haven't maxed out your ceiling, your potential, or your life. You just need to reestablish what you actually hope for. You need to reestablish your why, and so hopefully that gives you a little bit of focus and direction there. If your conviction is stalled, if you feel your heart's sinking, don't despair, uh, reliance upon defective hope is like a parachute that works only most of the time. Hope must be correctly grounded. You must find the hope or the why that unlocks your potential. For myself personally, um, what I have found is that I want to be around for my children and grandchildren. Uh, my father wasn't around for his grandchildren, and that that's the why. And so when I get tempted to cheat or to, to, to do fall off the wagon i just think about the fact that i I want to see grandchildren in the future and i know that if i don't eat correctly that won't happen and so that's really what my my hope is to see and spend time with my grandchildren in the future and uh, that's my hope and that's my driver there that drives me uh the hope or your why is often referred to in the scriptural sense as a helmet of salvation. If you read First Thessalonians five eight uh, in the judeo Christian Bible, um, hope is also referred to as an anchor. If you read the, you can read that in Hebrews six nineteen. So hope acts as this foundation principle in our lives, no matter your, whether you're religious or not. That hope for a, a, a better future is really the the driver. Um, but that hope has to be has to be. Um, strong and powerful, and has to be an anchor. It can't be weak, uh, and that's that's why I, I mentioned the scripture in Hebrews six nineteen. Those with true moving hope may often see their personal, personal circumstances shaken up like a kaleidoscope again and again, but with hope as your anchor, your ability. Uh, to use the eye of faith looking back on foundational truth of life, like the the science of, of low-carb living or, or car, carnivorous living, uh, are still able to see and visualize the pattern and purpose of life in the future. And so using that truth, you can actually use hope as an anchor to move forward to where you want to be. And that's why I, I bring this up, because it's important from a mental and emotional aspect of life to have that hope as an anchor. There is another interesting component that relates to your why Uh, your perception of hope and accessing the power of that why. Um, This is called distress tolerance. You may have heard this about this, you may not have. Distress tolerance is the ability to handle cravings or physical stresses that actually cause discomfort. Being able to handle difficult emotions can help a person more quickly return to a state of equilibrium when new stressors arise. And these will help a person stay on track in the accomplishment of your desired goal. One of the greatest predictors of people's ability to succeed at a difficult goal is actually something very simple. It's the ability to hold one's breath or breath holding. The ability to hold your breath forces a person to come to grips, to grips with scary uh, or anxiety-provoking provoking emotions. It uh, relates to one's ability to be in attendance to an experience rather than immediately trying to escape the experience. Um, This is actually fascinating information. There was a study of 88 participants uh, where they were asked to inhale deeply, then exhale, then inhale and hold their breath as long as they could. Breath holding was defined as the average duration in seconds after two trials. Um, half of those participating in this study had either had a, one of the following: social anxiety disorder, general anxiety, specific phobia, cannabis abuse, dysthymia, alcohol abuse, major depressive disorders, obsessive compulsive disorder, eating disorder, or or bipolar disorder. Additionally. 50% of the study group had experienced an unexpected panic attack at least once within the last two years prior to testing. So half this group had experienced some form of emotional distress and had had some form of unexpected panic attack. Now, um, 50% of this group had also experienced some form of traumatic traumatic event in their life. Um, uh, yes, I did test my my breath holding, and I could hold my breath for about 63 seconds, uh, just you don't need to compare, but I just someone's going to ask me that, so I figured I'd put that in there. Anyway, crisis survival skills um, are short-term coping strategies that help you manage emotional pain and avoid destructive behavior. When a, a person starts to feel extreme emotional distress, it's going to lower your distress tolerance Um and people will do whatever they can to avoid feeling the pain of those emotions. Often those emotions are, are emotions that are stored in the amygdala of the brain, which we're going to look at here in a second. Such actions um, can lead to self-harm behaviors like cutting and burning, running away or avoiding the situation, using alcohol, drugs, eating comfort foods, denying that the stress was real. Uh, the avoidance of emotional pain may lead to more harmful or even risky behavior that have serious or long-term consequence. During a perceived or actual crisis, a person's mesolimbic system gets activated and is uh, turned on to high alert. Uh, It's difficult to practice adaptive coping techniques when a person's already agitated in that agitated state of mind. The use of sugar, alcohol, drugs, and porn are all coping mechanisms, and these are mechanisms of escape or to escape from a perceived emotional pain you're going to be much more susceptible to triggers of the mesolimbic system when you're sleep-deprived, hormonally imbalanced, uh, in either the thyroid or the sex hormones, under increased stress from changes in your job, a relationship, uh, if you've just purchased a home, or you've experienced the birth or a death of a family member. So let's look for a moment at the brain, the primal brain, uh, or the uh, the. the some people call it the lizard brain or the brainstem oversees our basic survival functions like our heart rate, our blood pressure, our respiratory rate. Uh, This part of the brain is always on and it's always trying to keep you alive. The limbic system of the brain is located in the center of the brain, just above the brainstem, and it oversees fear and stress and memory and emotion. Uh, these memory and emotion being tied together, uh, and it also it, looks, it, it oversees your sense of smell. Uh, memory and emotion and your basic emotional response patterns, though plastic and moldable, are actually formed from the time before you were born until around age seven or eight years old, and those, those basic uh, neural pathways are formed as a child. This almond-shaped part of the brain uh, that houses the limbic system uh, is called the amygdala. The role of the amygdala is to keep you safe and secured. It is the am I loved part of the brain. This part of the brain records memory by attaching those memories to molecules of emotion and the hormones that are associated with those emotions. That's why every memory you have is associated with a specific, specific feeling of emotion, um, The job of this part of the brain's function is to get you to avoid the pain and to seek the pleasure as a mechanism to keep you essentially safe and secure. Uh, this is the part of the brain where you literally interpret facial expressions and make decisions. In fact, your amygdala is so sensitive to pupil size in someone else that it can actually determine the index of a person's interest in us by instantaneously reco- recognizing pupil size. Uh, and so it's a pretty powerful aspect of the brain that you don't even know is working behind the scenes giving you input as to whether you're safe and secure and happy and feel loved. Uh, Remember, most of our decisions throughout the day are done on autopilot by this part of the brain, the amygdala, uh, to save you energy uh, and thought uh, by by the subconscious mind functioning uh, predominantly around the amygdala and uh, using memory and emotion that you've already created as a child uh, in in basically autopilot motions. Uh, We do this not because we're thinking machines that feel, but we are actually feeling machines that think, if you look at our brains. Our basic primal brain function is based on our emotional responses through this limbic and autonomic nervous system uh, in the amygdala and in the brainstem. Now, the brainstem and the amygdala communicate information, essentially emotions and the neural hormones that are attached to memory uh, and they send that information to the prefrontal cortex, which is to the front of the brain. This is where you actually think about thinking uh, it 's what differentiates us from the, the other mammals is that we can think about our thoughts uh, where most mammals are basically, basically function on instinct it 's where you move beyond the knee jerk impulse and the instinct and you experience imagination, inspiration, and creativity. Um, whenever your amygdala senses pain or threat and alarm will go off to defend you, your amygdala is always subconsciously scanning your environment around you. It operates predominantly from unconscious memory and emotion. Many of those are b- uh, basic emotions and memories that were uh, that were created when you were less than seven years old or seven years old or younger. Um, this is how you suddenly experience a sweaty palm, heart palpitations, and increased respiratory rate when you have a close call driving, or you have to slam on your brakes. Uh, or when you suddenly experience a panic attack in a dark alley, it's because your amygdala is on high alert and has actually turned on the brainstem and the autonomic nervous system and the fight-or-flight system to, um, to be prepared to respond. When the emotion is negative, uh, the hypothalamus is stimulated. This then turns on the autonomic fight-or-flight system, which I just mentioned. Um, it's also what can cause a sudden panic attack for no reason. I have a number of patients that will show up. It's actually more since, since the COVID uh, pandemic. But people show up in my office experiencing panic for no reason. And they don't understand why. Uh, they'll experience depression for no reason, even though they have no reason to feel depressed. Um, this is where the amygdala hijacks the brain uh, and... Uh, because there are more connections from the amygdala to the cortex than there are from the cortex back to the amygdala. And so if your amygdala is on overdrive, you can actually experience panic attacks for no reason and depression for no reason, and you'll see these amplified emotions that are there. Now, we know that people who've experienced trauma and anxiety as children actually have larger amygdala tissues, and so their their amygdalas are essentially on overdrive. Uh, they have more extreme reactions to stress, to anxiety, and to events that would trigger past memories and emotions, uh, even though you may not even consciously thinking about them. The amygdala can keep you subconsciously stuck in the past, uh, though you may not even know it, and it influences fear conditioning emotional memory, and response to abandonment. So if as a child you experience any of these emotions, that amygdala is is basically got neural pathways that are driving those responses when uh, subconsciously any of those thoughts are triggered or the amygdala senses there might be a potential problem. Even subconsciously, it'll trigger those those uh, those hormone releases. This leads to over-responsive amygdala reactions in your emotional memory bank. This is why, like the Pavlovian dog, um... You and I will often repeat the same old pattern, or you fall back into the old habits, often leading to frustration, feeling stuck, feeling overwhelmed, which then amplifies the functionality of the overresponsiveness of the amygdala, and it's a vicious cycle. It makes things worse and worse. The amygdala can even influence your ability to become sexually aroused or suppress sexual arousal, uh, and the amygdala on on that's on overdrive or or. Uh, overactive depending on the 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 memories and emotions attached within that amygdala and that overdrive that's there can either lead to lack of sexual drive and frigidity or increased sexual desire and promiscuity Uh, this is often where um in men where their amygdala is on overdrive they'll use porn to suppress that those desires because of an amplified amygdala interestingly enough and I don't recommend this, but if uh, you castrate a male, his amygdala will shrink by 30%. We learned that from the 50s and 60s when that was actually okay to do, and uh, the ethics of that was not s- so much in question as it is now. Um, now, the presence of ketones in the blood from a ketogenic or carnivorous diet has actually a dampening effect to the sensation and signaling from this limbic system and the amygdala. Um, that and we we actually see that those that have experienced emotional trauma and have amygdalas that are on overdrive, the presence of ketone actually ketones actually can decrease the anxiety present um, in, in that, and actually be, and it happens through the process of producing increased neuropeptide Y and a, a cascade of other hormones, and that actually helps. Um, as little as the second component is that as little as eight weeks of meditation has actually been shown to shrink your amygdala, uh, and a doctor by the name of Sarah Lazar in Harvard her Harvard Neuroscience Lab uh, states that the more stress reduction people reported, the smaller the amygdala got. Uh, And so if you can do meditation and mindfulness for about eight weeks, you'll actually see improvement in that. Studies demonstrate that deep diaphragmatic breathing or belly breathing, uh, the same technique or breathing technique we use in hypnotherapy, will calm down the amygdala. Meditation places a person into a state of either waking hypnosis, which is the second state of of trance or um, for those more practiced a hypnoidal trance which is the third state of trance and a person who's able to find deep relaxation of the mind and body is is able to turn the emotions and fears down. Uh, I'm a trained hypnotherapist as well and we find that in the fourth and fifth stage of hypnosis which is catalepsy Uh, or somnambulism, the amygdala actually turns itself off and then a person is able to, When we we remind them that they're actually in control of their emotions and not the hypnotherapist and they're actually able to communicate with that amygdala and actually identify those emotions and memories that are driving these anxieties and these panics to kick in and then actually turn them off themselves. Uh, It's in this state that the person can actually communicate with the, it's where the subconscious communicates with the conscious mind uh, and you're able to change the abnormal response to stress that may have arisen when you were five or or four years old, and you can't consciously remember it, but under hypnosis you can. Um, Some people who have been trained enough can do that through meditation or mindfulness as well. Uh, Because of the amygdala and the autonomic nervous system in its influence on the gut, uh, we've actually identified that hypnotherapy can actually have a profound improvement in the symptoms of bloating and distension with those who have irritable bowel syndrome as well as diarrhea. We're able to actually calm down that amygdala, which is Remember, the gut has its own intrinsic nervous system, and if your um, fight or flight system is amplified, you'll actually experience irritable bowel from the subconscious overdrive of your amygdala. Uh, in my office, we'll actually see an 80 to 85% reduction in irritable bowel, irritable bowel symptoms with just the use of a ketogenic or carnivorous diet. The presence of the ketone actually re- reduces neuropeptide Y, which is a downstream target of leptin this then decreases the hunger and further decreases the insulin effect on the hypothalamus and it's why a, a ketogenic diet is so effective in reducing the munchy symptoms a study by Southrane in 2011 found that hunger persisted at higher levels one year after cessation of a low calorie diet Uh, This was being driven by elevated levels of ghrelin, uh, protein YY, leptin, CCK, and pancreatic polypeptide. Uh, They found that when you institute a ketogenic or carnivorous diet, you didn't have this effect uh, because of the suppression of ghrelin. When you weren't suppressing that ghrelin, you didn't see that effect. So the long-term persistence um, of hormonal adaptation doesn't kick in when you're using a ketogenic or carnivorous diet, and that's the important part of that. Uh, So how do you improve the distress tolerance skills and improve your amygdala at home? So if you don't have access to a hypnotherapist or you're you're already using a ketogenic diet, what other components can you use to improve your symptoms? Well, let's talk about that. First, what I see is that the ketogenic or carnivorous diet will actually increase the presence of ketones. And within about four to seven days, you'll start to see the suppressive effect of cravings that that arise with that shift in the presence of ketones in the blood, so give it at least a week to see those cravings improve. A lot of people get discouraged after the third or fourth day, and, and when the cravings have gone away, they give up. Uh, don't don't do that. Um, realize that you've got to use that dietary approach for at least uh, seven days to see the suppression of those cravings. Uh, Any time you cheat on the diet, you're going to have cravings that will last for upwards of four to five days. So be be prepared for that. If you decide you go into the holidays and you decide to have chocolate or you know the 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 holiday cookies. You be aware that you're going to have those cravings return, um, and you're, you emotionally, if there's if there's emotions tied to the hormones released from those foods, those it will stimulate memories and cravings that you used as coping mechanisms in the past. So be aware of that. Um, using distress tolerance skills can help you lower the intensity of the emotional craving or the emotional pain you may have experienced. Um, a person can then utilize. Behavioral therapy, coping skills such as emotional regulation, mindfulness, and interpersonal skills, and so uh, there's a number of distress tolerance skills that are that a lot of therapists will use, like self-soothing, weighing pros and cons, radical upset, acceptance. Uh, the, uh, the acronym TIP T I P P, which stands for temperature change, intense exercise, paced breathing, paired muscle relaxation. You can use these components to actually help, uh, changing the temperature, taking a cold shower, uh, intense exercise will change some of those hormones, uh, pace breathing, which is part of what we're actually using to help stimulate the, um, the, uh, the, the, sense of trance that we will talk about here in a second uh, and paired muscle relaxation is a number another form of mind, mindfulness. Um, however, many of these skills uh, take a great deal of practice to be effective and they can be hard to do in a moment of crisis uh, when your mesolimbic system's kicked on and you basically are craving that cookie. So the, the, what I've actually found is that there's an effective method that improves your distress tolerance. And it's something that psychiatrists call surfing the urge. Now this requires you to pay attention to the physical distress caused by the urge so the key is not to avoid the emotion but to give the urge or that craving your full attention a lot of people want to hide from it or run away from it uh, or suppress it with sugar Um, that's not what we want to do Um, first you want to trust that you can tolerate any physical sensation that comes to you. And this is what people learn in hypnotherapy is that the emotion is actually trying to tell you something. It's your subconscious mind attempting to tell you something. Um, if you'll wait patiently, the urge will go away. Um, the key is remembering that you don't actually have to respond to the emotion. The emotion is going to occur, but you don't actually have to respond. A lot of people think that they actually have to respond to an emotion and they don't, um, when you've solidified your hope and you have a you have a goal in the future, uh, and this powerful why plays a big role here and is the key to what we call our writing the craving the craving wave so any craving or any emotion will pass if you just use imagery and breathing techniques to write it out so basically what you do is I was at the I was at a medical conference over the weekend and we were on the we were in Huntington Beach and we my wife and I got to go out and watch the waves and there was a guy out surfing, uh, it was cold, water was cold he was in a wetsuit and he was uh, he would watch this wave come in and, and he would begin to paddle and kick and try to get up on the surfboard and then he would crash. Um, what you want to look at is even though you may crash, you want to attempt to ride the wave. There's going to be an emotion of a craving that comes through, um, and this works even with intrusive thoughts. It works with suicidal thought. It works with um, uh, cravings that are coming through or, or, uh, uh, negative thought, you can actually ride the emotion that's associated with that. So basically you, you imagine yourself, uh, getting up onto a surfboard. You essentially step away from the memory, or let me rephrase that. You step away from, uh, the emotion so you can watch yourself literally see the emotion as a wave and then ride the the wave all the way into the shore. Um, you want to picture that craving as a wave and then you ride it out as it dissipates out and then hits the shore in the, the, if you follow this technique of surfing the urge, smokers have actually been able to reduce their smoking by 40% without even being asked. You just, if we teach them this technique, 40% of them quit smoking. Uh, it's pretty fascinating how this works. Uh, it, it literally severs the link between stress and smoking or stress and eating. There was a study that was done where people were asked to carry around a box of Hershey's Kisses uh, with them for 48 hours. Half the group was taught to surf the urge, to surf the urge for the craving of eating that chocolate, and the other half was not. Now, you're going to probably all of a sudden get this urge to eat chocolate. I want you to pretend like you're seeing that urge as a wave, and then I want you to imagine yourself on a surfboard riding that wave into the shore as the wave dissipates out, it will take a minute or two, but the, the wave will dissipate. Um, the group who is taught to surf that urge, uh, in in that group, not a single participant had a craving or desire to eat the chocolate in a 48-hour time period that that, that was it was that they were treated for. Um, this technique can be applied to negative or intrusive thoughts. Um, basically you're essentially you're essentially learning to accept your own cravings or your own emotions as your own, and then reframe them as a wave consciously uh, in your mind uh, that, you are, that you surf and that you don't, aren't churned under by. Uh, we actually find that long-term weight loss success triples when we use this technique. So when a craving arises, instead of trying to hide from the craving or, feel you, uh, or feed the craving, you allow yourself to actually use that craving. Um, you basically attend the feeling and you use some breath techniques that I'm going to describe to you here in a minute as you feel the emotion and it's the combination of this imagery and the breathing that you can do any at any time which will um allow you to focus on that craving and the breathing becomes the source of stability as you focus on the writing that wave through so while you're focusing on your breathing and writing you're going to imagine what it's going to feel like when you experience uh and recommit to your new goal as well at that same time. So there's, let me give you five steps. Number one, you're going to train your willpower physiologically and shut down the limbic system through breath exercises. So what you're going to do is you're going to take a four-second deep diaphragmatic breath in. So... One, two, three, four. Count of four seconds. And this is a belly breath. Uh, we use this in, in uh, meditation. We use this in hypnotherapy where you're not breathing through your chest. You're actually breathing and your diaphragm and your belly are actually poking out. So this is where we want you to poke your belly out. So as you take a deep breath in for four seconds, your belly is actually poking out. Then you're going to hold that breath for about four second pause. And then you're going to over the next eight seconds, exhale as your belly pushes in uh, and you'll exhale over about eight seconds. And then you're going to repeat that six to 10 times. And as you're doing that breath technique, you're imagining yourself, you're visualizing yourself surfing that wave of that emotion that you feel. You're actually feeling that emotion and you're surfing it in. And then as you come into the to the shore, you're imagining yourself in the future. This is where the hope comes into play. The, the person that you hope to be, you're imagining that person is is achieving that um image or that, that, that persona as you achieve the shore, and then you're recommitting yourself to your new, new goal. And if you have to repeat it a couple times with a few waves, you're riding it in six to 10 times as you're um, doing these breath exercises. So four-second deep diaphragmatic breath in, holding for four seconds, and then exhaling for eight seconds. Um, if you, Step number two, if you have a setback, then just forgive yourself and go forward. We all have setbacks. Uh, the surfer that I was watching, he he rolled under the waves four or five times before he finally caught one of the waves coming in. Uh, when I surfed, the same thing happened. I would I would get tumbled over by a few of the waves, and then one of them I'd get lucky and, and ride it in. Uh, but the the issue is, as you're learning to ride the wave, you're learning to see your emotion as separate and that you don't actually have to respond to the emotion. You're accepting the emotion as something that your subconscious mind is attempting to tell you, and then you're riding in and learning about what that is trying to tell you. This allows you to make friends with your future self. I want you to visualize who you want to be, um, and make friends with that person mentally, uh, in, in a way that actually feels real. Uh, I want you to see your future self in five or ten years with that goal. And what are you going to look like? What are you going to feel like? What's going to feel like to have um, more toned muscles? What's it going to feel like to have you know a thirty-two a, a inch waist? What's it going to feel like to um, fit into you know that size six clothing? What's it, what's it going to feel like? And what's it going to be like? Make friends with that person and have mental conversations with that person. And as you ride that wave and you're meeting that person at the shore uh, as you're doing these breath exercises, and this is a real easy way at home that you can overcome those cravings uh, and overcome the limbic system that's been trained since you were really young to handle stresses in in an unhealthy way. Um, Fourth, um, I want you to predict the failures. There's going to be things that are going to cause these cravings to happen. You're going to go over to Aunt Betty's house, and she's going to insist that you eat the blueberry pie. Um, And you may eat the blueberry pie and and go, oh my gosh, and have a second and a third piece. Um, I want you to predict what's going to cause you to fail and get interested in the process that causes those failures, and then look at what can I do to overcome those failures. Um, for me, I find that if I'm going to go to somebody's house, I will eat protein ahead of time so that I'm not craving as much and I'm already pretty full. Um, if I'm going to an activity where I know there's going to be a bunch of carbs, I'll either look for protein foods that are there or I'll eat ahead of time so that I can go and participate and still socialize but not have these tremendous cravings to, to imbibe in the, the all the yumminess that's there. And then when a temptation arises, uh, just surf the urge and write it out. And that's essentially the five steps of unlocking your amygdala and reaching your goals and your, your hope. Um, hopefully that's helped. This is a bit, a bit longer uh, podcast, but I wanted to be able to answer the components of those questions and how they relate to overcoming cravings, especially during the holiday season. Um, hopefully this is helpful. If you've got any further questions, shoot them over to me at questions at We'd love to answer the questions. And thanks for listening. You guys have a wonderful evening.